0: Thank you for continuing to listen along with us. We come today to what is part four in our study of the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking today at the middle section of Hebrews. So if you have a copy of scripture, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five. We'll be looking at the theme that we now arrive at in the middle of the book of Hebrews, the, the primary content of this middle section of the letter, that Jesus is our high priest. In fact, I've entitled this message, Jesus, a new high priest. You may have caught on by now. The Greek word translated greater appears more times in Hebrews than all of the New Testament combined. The writer to this letter is intent on convincing his audience that Jesus is greater than the system and the things that have come before. And so we've seen where Jesus is greater than the angels. And Jesus is greater than Moses, that great leader of old. And Jesus is now greater even than the high priests that they've known in the past. The whole system of priesthood that brought them to rightness with God. And so we begin today by asking ourselves, what does it mean that Jesus is a high priest? And even more than that, what does it mean that Jesus is our priest today And perhaps even more, the writer is asking, what does it mean that Jesus is the great high priest? It's an image that we don't always relate to that well, isn't it? Some of us haven't grown up in Christian traditions where priesthood was thought of quite the same way as the Jewish tradition. Certainly we don't relate to the people of Levi, of those tribes that were led by priests, or the the whole priestly temple system by which they atoned for sins. And so we ask today, what what does it mean for us to think about Jesus as a priest? Is there an image that we could think of, that we could look to in our world today that might help us know Jesus' role in this way? My house faces east, which means the front porch is shaded every evening. It's one of our favorite things to do, to sit out in the rocking chairs that we have out front and Maybe watch the kids play or people walk their dogs by or coming home from work enjoying that great Amarillo evening breeze. As it happens, the one of the houses across the street from me has been torn down and is now in the process of being built back up again. A new home being constructed. And so in our evening sitting time, we are able to check in on the progress for the day to see how things have gone, what new phase we've entered. If you've ever been around a home being built, you know there's a lot of workers involved, a lot of phases that take place. First there was the demolition crew. It was just a couple of guys that showed up with big trucks and large machinery. In fact, they had one backhoe that knocked the old house down and loaded it bit by bit into a dump truck. The dump truck would then be driven off and unloaded and they'd come back to start again at loading the debris. Once the old material was gone, somebody else, a different crew, had to come in and level the site. They had smaller machinery, different clothing, different tools. They spent a long time moving dirt, leveling the place, getting it ready for the next crew. They came in like an army. They were all wearing the same bright T-shirt and had their own special boots. They were the cement crew, pouring a foundation. They had to frame it up first and get the cement just right, prepare the site for a house, running all over the place, moving quickly, making quick work, all dressed the same. And they gave way to the framing crew that we've been watching lately, a slightly smaller crew, a different set of skills with their tools strapped around their waistbands with hooded sweatshirts that kept them out of the summer's sun, maybe to keep them cooler Each crew, each different phase, each different qualified person came by to do their job, and every one of them looked a certain part, played a certain role, had certain tools. They dressed in their priestly garb as a priesthood of their own with their instruments of their religion strapped around their waist, ready to do the work that only they were qualified to do. Smoothing the land, pouring a foundation, framing a house, each one unique, each one qualified for a certain role. You know, priests were unique people, and they were uniquely trained in the Old Testament for a specific task. The reality is that that something in the world is broken, and it was their job to fix it, to work on behalf of the people and on behalf of God to, to mend what had been so torn apart to tear down what was wrong with the world and help people to build back up the world as God created it to be. And so priests represented these broken and morally compromised people before the holiness and the justice of God. And the problem, of course, is that this work required ongoing, continuous maintenance. But in reality, they were the only ones in society so equipped and empowered by God to deal with with this issue. And so they, they were this priesthood, who, this group of people who played a certain role and only they were qualified for that part. Like watching each team, each crew come in and move along the next phase of a house, only priests could step in and do the framing when it needed to be built back up. Only priests could, could pour a new foundation on which people could build their lives. They stood in between the owner and the builder of the home and got the job done to build what God had called them to build. Or maybe to turn your attention to a different priesthood, I might admit that I'm not exactly a car guy. I'm pretty handy around the house. I like to think I'm a do-it-yourself kind of fixer. I don't mind getting dirty in the midst of a project and learning how something works so that I can repair it. But when it comes to my vehicles, I just really don't have the time of day. And, And I don't really have a whole lot of interest in solving those problems myself. Sure, minor maintenance is one thing, small fixes, replacing parts, but when it comes to the big stuff, I I don't have time to tinker around in my garage all day trying to get it right. I take it to someone who knows what they're doing, who opens a hood and and knows how every part interrelates and works with one another to keep the engine functioning properly. That priesthood of mechanics that works down the road for me in their adult onesies so they can look the part. I take them the engine that's broken, and they're qualified to do something about that. Something's broken, and they're the ones who repair. And that's who these priests were. Something, as the whole story of Scripture testifies, was greatly broken, and it was their job to stand between God and His people and to help repair. Repair. And so beginning there at the end of chapter 4, Jesus begins to be compared to the priests. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, the scriptures, the writer to the Hebrews, is turning our attention to Jesus' role as our priest. That, as we've already seen, he sympathizes with us. He has been in our condition, he knows our situation and weakness and brokenness, and, and he has been broken himself on the cross. And what is in question now is not so much is Jesus a part of us. Is Jesus down below? Was he a fellow sufferer with us? No, we've, we've been convinced of that now. We know Jesus was all the way human, but now we're getting pointed back to the fact that Jesus is also the true divine Son of God. And so it's important that he's not just suffering and rejected and defeated, but all of a sudden we're told he's the great high priest and somewhere deep within these words is a great irony that, that the, the writer almost certainly knew the people would balk at, would pause as they heard it. How, how can this suffering servant be some great high priest? And how is that even possible? And so chapter 5 begins by walking us through what every high priest, the qualifications all of them had for their job, and how at each turn, Jesus not only completes the qualifications, meets the standards to be the high priest, but far in a way exceeds even those of a priest. So as we walk through chapter five of this letter, to begin this introduction of the theme of priesthood, I want you to see as these qualifications, these standards for a priest are laid out in the first several verses, and then as the the writer turns his attention to Jesus, we, we begin to see how Jesus meets. Each of those. So look at those with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first function of the high priests here in in verse 1 is that they were mediators between God and human beings, they straddled this gap between heaven and earth that existed. In the temple. So, really, the high priests were the people who would take the gifts and the sacrifices of all the other people and offer them to God as this atonement for their sins, it says. And so, the high priest doesn't save people from their sins on their own. Only God can do that, of course. But the high priest is a messenger of salvation, carrying these symbols of repentance, these human images for their inward change, carrying them to God and returning with this word of atonement for them. And verse two continues by describing that that this all high priests are able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness, and because of this he must offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but it but takes it only when called by God just as Aaron was. So these priests were human and they needed to be compassionate people who were sympathetic, that were not just uh, preachers, but were pastors as well. They were able to shepherd the people. They were dealing with these deep and difficult topics of sin and fear and guilt and hunger and hope for salvation. And so these old priests had this holy job of being caring people. They were also chosen by God, called alone by Him. You can't just walk up one day and say, Oh, I'd like to be a priest now in in the the Levite tribe. No, you had to be born into this. You had to be be called and created by God for this purpose. And so having established these unique functions and people that were priests, the text continues in verse 5, that also Christ, working backwards from the qualifications we just saw, Christ, just like it was said you can't presume to take this honor. Christ didn't glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So verse 6 clarifies that, that no ancient high priest would have been so presumptuous to volunteer for the job or arrogant enough to try and grab some glory by appointing themselves as a high priest, naming themselves to this job. Instead, now, these high priests were called by God and served like Aaron by God's appointment. And Jesus, too, wasn't self-appointed or, or seeking glory, but a high priest chosen and designated by God. The writer of Hebrews makes this point by quoting two of his favorite psalms, apparently Psalm 2-7 and Psalm one hundred and ten four, that Jesus is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And that same little phrase will get quoted as we'll see several times here in verse five and six, uh, chapter five and six and seven. Psalm 1104 is speaking this language of appointment, that Jesus is going to be a priest not for a lifetime but forever, and not according to the regular orders of all the other priests, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And once again, Jesus exceeds the job descriptions of even other high priests. I know you're thinking, what does it mean that Jesus is a a high priest in the order of Melchizedek? We'll get back to that in just a minute. I know you're really excited to figure out who Melchizedek is and how that applies to your daily life. I know it's a a pressing question you woke up with this morning. But the text keeps going. Uh, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus continues to fulfill each of these roles, but fulfill them even better. He is a compassionate, sympathetic priest. He knows our weaknesses. He has been all the way down to where we are. He knows the pain and ambiguity of being human. He embodies human life in its frailty and its whole range of experience. And then by verse 9... We're looking all the way back to to verse 1 where we were talking about the high priest's function. Verse 9 clarifies that Jesus serves as a mediator, yes, between God and sinful humanity, but he also exceeds the ancient priests in in at least two very important ways. First, he's not just a mediator. Verse 9 tells us that he is the source of salvation himself. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In fact, not only is he the source of salvation, but he's going to be a source of salvation eternally. Other priests came and went. That's the problem with the system. As great as priests were at performing their role, at at coming in when it was their time on the crew to, to set the foundation or to frame out the house, to repair what had been broken, they came and went. They were limited in scope and limited in power, but Jesus comes as eternal salvation. And this is a point that will be continue, continually made throughout the next several chapters and well into this, uh, the peak of this mid, middle section in chapter 9 where, where the writer can say in, in chapter 9, verse 11, when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into it, the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship of the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Jesus not only fulfills and, and fills the role of the whole entire old system of priests, that they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and stand between heaven and earth and mediate between man and God and repair what has gone wrong in creation bit by bit, but... But those priests were limited. Their lives would end, and so would their ministry. And and so that brokenness could never be repaired. In fact, God never willed it to be so. As early as the system was created, God was reminding the people that it simply pointed forward. Pointed forward to a new way and a new covenant that God would bring about one day when creation would be brought to perfection. And by perfection... The story meant completion, God's wholeness. And who could do that? What priest could possibly accomplish that? None other, the writer to the Hebrews wants to be clear. None other than Jesus. And this theme continues in chapter 7. I want you to jump forward with me to chapter 7 where we begin to get a picture of what it means that Jesus is of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And it seems at first to be this technical and, and small addition that, that the writer of the letter of Hebrews would quote Psalm one ten four to say that the Ma- Messiah was not just a priest, but a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he, quote that, he quotes that passage in, in chapter 5, verse 6, and then again in verse 10, and then in, in chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered and become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what sort of priesthood did Melchizedek have? And how did it relate to to what God was promising to Abraham? And and what clues might there be here to help us understand more about Jesus himself? Chapter 7 helps us. The author begins by Quoting this key passage from Genesis fourteen seventeen through 20, the writer uh, begins to reflect on it, to think about how from the start, uh, what Melchizedek means. His, his name in Hebrew meant king and, uh, from Melech, and Zedek in Hebrew means righteousness or justice, and so he's the king of righteousness. And since he's a, also a king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, and since shalom means peace, the writer says, he is a king of peace also. And so the writer is kind of toying with these possibilities and and beginning to make his point. And then by verse 3, which is sometimes misunderstood, we get to the meat of this argument. That Melchizedek, as far as we know, had no father or mother or genealogy or beginning of days or end of days, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so the writer is, is connecting some dots for us. That Melchizedek, this not that often mentioned character in the Old Testament, is introduced into the story of Abraham as a priest of God Most High. But there's not really any mention made of of where he got his priesthood from, and and there's certainly not any mention made of an inheritance that he obtained it from. And there's no mention of his priesthood starting or finishing with birth or death. It's almost as though in this story, he's just there as something of of a permanent fixture which is preparing us for the, the greater point being made here, that Jesus' high priesthood doesn't depend on being born into a priestly family, as the Levites were, but that his priesthood, unlike any of the Levitical priests, continues uninterrupted, even to this present time. And so, in chapter 7, verses 4 through 10, the contrast is laid out between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood described in Psalm 110, the order of Melchizedek and Drawing from that Genesis 14 story about Melchizedek and Abraham, we discover that Jesus is like that. And so chapter 10 is kind of making the case that the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek is obviously superior because even Abraham pays pays tithes to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed him. He is thus superior, not only to Abraham, but also to Levi, one of Abraham's great-grandchildren. And so the story goes on weaving together how Melchizedek and Abraham relate just to tell us and to remind us that Jesus himself is a Melchizedek kind of priest. One that's far superior to the Levitical priesthood that was around at present. And so on the one hand, Jesus is there to be like them, but also to replace them, to supersede that old system. So Jesus made the the present temple and all that goes with it redundant. And you can also put complete confidence in him, the author is arguing, and your trust in him because he's a a lasting priest. And so there in the middle of chapter 7, this argument is being made. And in chapter 7, verse 23 picks up, Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And there's so much going on in this passage, so much uh, to unpack that the writer of Hebrews is laying out before the people, unlike any other New Testament writer, that Jesus is not just the high priest who is more capable and more fitting than any other priest to offer sacrifice, but that he does so perfectly and blamelessly and forever. Not only that, but he does not need other sacrifices because he himself is the sacrifice. And so by virtue of his own life, he becomes a fitting and capable priest who will last forever, who has been made perfect forever. And So we begin to see a fuller picture of Jesus' own ministry. It's amazing to think how often that role is missed. When we talk about Jesus, we so often talk about Christ has come and Christ is coming again. And, of course, these are central events in in world history that we mark our own existence by, that Christ has redeemed us and Christ will fulfill all creation, complete creation, at the end of history. But one of the things that the writer of Hebrews uniquely pulls to the forefront is something that we so quickly move past, and that is, where is Jesus now? And as our great high priest, Jesus plays this role in the now of interceding on behalf of us. I had just finished leading worship not too long ago at a different church, when on my way out the door after three long morning services, exhausted and yet filled by the word of God, walking out, and an older gentleman from the congregation tracked me down, almost flagging me before I could even head to the car to be sure and let me know that uh, I had done incorrectly, I had misspoken, I had, had failed to lead worship properly because at the end of a prayer somewhere in the service, I don't even remember, I had concluded a prayer without saying, in Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. And, of course, like anybody who flags you down in a parking lot to correct you, he had his own unique ideas as to to why that was such a significant problem. And certainly I don't disagree with him that it is Jesus to whom we pray who intercedes on our behalf. That's what we're talking about here. He wanted to make sure I got that point, uh, that I may have missed it. Now, of course, politely spoke with him about what it means to say that and why we, of course, believe that, but how these are not magic words that we utter at the end of a prayer that could somehow alter its meaning or effectiveness, that that prayers offered to Jesus are effective in so many words that we choose to use. But central to his point is that little reminder that we almost effortlessly tag on to so many prayers that we pray in the name of Jesus. And the reason that we do that, and the reason that we believe that, is because in the now in the present in the today that Hebrews speaks of Jesus has been made perfect and sits at the right hand of the father as a perfect high priest and as the writer here imagines that he intercedes just like a priest who stands between people and God helping to repair what has so gone wrong and been broken in creation Jesus intercedes on our behalf and Paul would agree with him in Romans chapter 8 when he says that the spirit Uh, intercedes with groans uh, as deep and as as loud as as the pangs of childbirth. When we don't have words, don't know the words, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is our intercessor, the one who goes between heaven and earth, who being a perfect sacrifice has made possible for us the new life that burst forth from his resurrection, a, a whole new humanity now made available to us, not just because he once came and he will once come again, but because right now, friend, right now, he sits interceding on our behalf. And what we're seeing in chapters 5 through 7 here in the middle of Hebrews is this deep storyline of the Bible that includes and begins with this assumption that we need a priest. We're not okay as we stand. And it's so against the grain of our culture and our own beings to admit that, to say that our our hearts and our minds are deeply broken and that we cannot do what needs to be done. There is only one qualified person to build new life here. He absorbs the death that we all individually and collectively created in the world. He conquers it through his resurrection, offering life to those who turn to him in faith We need a high priest because we are not okay. This world is not okay. And our religious pluralism of today and the society as it exists sometimes suggests that we ought to find our way through whatever tradition we choose, that you can just kind of figure it out on your own, or if your path gets you where you want to go, then that's great. But friends, in all humility, we proclaim that the scriptures teach that we are so broken and the world is so unraveled that there is only, One possible way for us to find healing and true connection to God. There's only one way that leads to life. There's only one builder who is qualified to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he is the one true God. He comes among us us and, and offers his life being both the perfect high priest forever and the sacrifice we need. And we gather each week around that scandalous and freeing truth that you are too broken for self-repair and you are not qualified to work on this machine. We need this high priest who forever will do what we cannot do. And he sits there today now, even in this moment. And as we gather around that truth and proclaim this about Jesus, we can't help but be reminded today that there are those among us and those in our midst who need to turn to this mediator, this priest, this one who pioneers and perfects our faith, who, if we will place our faith in him, will give us the life he now lives. That is available today for all those who believe may each of us by the grace and hope held out to us in Jesus come to know that he accomplishes on our behalf what we cannot do for ourselves that he is the only one qualified and able to rescue and redeem an entire lost creation that he has done so by his death and resurrection, and he holds that life out to us even now that we too might live with him forever. Pray with me if you would. God, we place our lives in your hands, our hopes in our hands, our joys, successes, and failures. We hold them up to you and say, we cannot on our own save ourselves, and we need a priest We need one who fulfills this role as only you can do, to come and to make us new, to rescue us from the sin that has so broken our world. We pray you would do that today and every day, and that all who do not know you would come to place their faith in the only worthy Savior. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.